only how we feel, like on the inside, but how we live. You know, I think that that's why you're here in many ways. You want to experience that. In a word, a, a, a biblical word for it is you want salvation. That's a word that just means deliverance. You want that. You want that experience. We want to live authentically as delivered people. Um, we, in the Zacchaeus story, in particular, it highlights what it looks like. And that's where I'll focus our time mostly today. It shows us that when Jesus shows up in your life, uh, when he takes interest in your situation, uh, in your personal life, in your family life, whatever it is, when Jesus shows up and takes interest in your situation, his grace always comes with him. But here's what you need to remember, <laughs> and, and it's what we see in this story, and it's what I want to focus on today. Receiving Jesus' grace requires courage on your part. It just does. Uh, the Zacchaeus story is a case study, actually. It's a little short, wonderful little case study in grace and courage. Both are, all, both are mingled together in the story, and I would say that both are usually mingled together wherever you look at in the Scriptures. See, experiencing the grace of Jesus is not, just, is not an experience for you of hiding and insulating yourself from fears and hard things. No, 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 it's just very much the opposite. Actually, what I would say is usually experiencing the grace of Jesus invites you to start facing fears and confronting things that are really difficult and sometimes really scary. It's in, God's grace invites us to face our fears in new ways with a courageous kind of faith and dependence on God. And it takes courage. I mean, you know, like if you're here this morning and honestly, like you, you don't even know where, where you're at in the faith, you're not a Christian, that's welcome. I'm glad you're here. But it, like, it takes courage to open yourself up to God for the first time. But even if you've been a Christian for a really long time, it, it, it takes courage to open yourself up to ongoing transformation, which is... I can't get into it, I don't have the time, I wish I did, but I could get into a whole thing over, that's where I see the church at right now. It's in a moment of radical transformation. Some will be transformed by the chaos and the uncertainty, and some won't, and that's the truth of it. Because it takes courage to open ourselves up to even though the fact that we might have been a Christian for 20 years, it's like, I'm still un, like under transforming work. And there are things I need to face in my own life. And so uh, there's three little movements I just want to briefly touch on here in our story. Three little movements of courage that really are instructive for all of us, wherever we find ourselves this morning. So let, let, me, let me begin to read it again. So after healing the blind beggar, Jesus enters Jericho. In verse 2, behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. <laughs> And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. <clears throat> but on the account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. I've got a little picture for you to just kind of visualize it. Here's a typical sycamore tree that you can find in Palestine. It, just to be really clear, that is not the tree that Zacchaeus climbed. <laughs> I'm sure that tree is gone. Uh, but this is the, the, the type of species that exists in Palestine that, that is being referenced, okay? So you can imagine the wee little Zacchaeus climbing this. It's short, it's, it's got a, a wide trunk, low branches, so he could climb in. So a, a, a guy like me could climb this. <clears throat> that was not meant to be a joke, Brad. 
Uh, okay, so here's what I want you to think of. The first thing I, I want you to recognize in just the very, these first few verses of our story, um, it takes courage to admit that you're discontent. Like it, it, takes, uh, it takes courage to admit sometimes that you're actually really unhappy. Some of you are like, no, it doesn't. I say it all the time. Um, no, it takes courage to actually admit that you've got an angst going on inside of you, especially, hear me, especially when you got money, especially when you got wealth or privilege or whatever it is, you're in a particular situation and you, you, things are going well for you in your family or career, it's hard. It takes courage actually to admit it. And I'm not talking about the fleeting unhappiness you feel because the service at the restaurant was poor. And I'm, I'm not talking about the unhappiness you feel because your kids have been crazy this week. You don't have any trouble stating this week has really been hard in those areas. That's not what I'm, I'm not talking about expressing discontent because your spouse has been in a raw mood lately. I'm not talking about uh, just the, 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 the discontent you feel because the deadlines at school, you know, finals really are hard. Um, that doesn't take a ton of courage to admit that you're discontent there. I'm talking about a deeper kind of ache that you can't seem to shake even when your life, by all appearances, is going very well. By outside appearances, your life seems like it's going well. Luke tells us that Zacchaeus is a chief tax collector. And so in case we didn't already know, he also says he's rich. I love Luke. He's so methodical. He doesn't want you to miss anything. So um, just for context, the ancient city of Jericho by this time was an affluent settlement. Uh, it's recently been, uh, had been elaborated and expanded by Herod. It has a warm climate. Uh, it made a, a favored place uh, for leading citizens of Jerusalem uh, to have a second home. It's Naples <laughs> for us, you know, or whatever it is what we think of when we think, oh, yeah, I'm, I have money. I want to end up in Hilton Head part-time. It's Jericho. That's what's happening in Jericho at this time. So tax collectors, of course, maybe you know this already, they're known for their shady, exploitive practices. Uh, they were known for being rich and for taking their high commission cuts from their collections. The fact that he's a chief tax collector means he's really rich, and he's living in a very affluent town. He's probably the kingpin for the region, um, extravagantly rich, and obviously in the text we can see that he's well-known and very unpopular. Um, and all of that context is important as you, would, as you visualize the wee little rich man climbing up this tree. What is going on in Zacchaeus' head? Don't pass over it. It's like, oh, he's sure he's climbing a tree. No, why? Why? Why is he climbing a tree in the midst of a crowd? I, I, I don't know. We don't know what's going on in Zacchaeus' head. Luke doesn't tell us. But I get the sense that something deeper is going on inside of him than just mere curiosity. A rich man, bear in mind, a rich man in our context, but even in their context, a rich, very, very rich man climbing a tree in the midst of a crowd is quite the undignified thing to do. Do you understand that? Right? Imagine, think of a rich person in your life you know, that you know very, or that you don't know, right? They're so rich, right? So famous. You, there's no, you, you can't get close to them. And they're at a parade, and they're hanging out in a tree. 
that's weird. And it's undignified to a certain extent, right? They're not in their backyard playing with their kids. Yet he does this. Something, in, something I think here tells us that despite the riches of Zacchaeus, he's deeply discontent. He's got a spiritual ache to him. He's willing to risk himself. I mean, think about that. This is the pattern over and over and over again in the Gospels. People who feel a deep sense of lacking get interested or they go looking for Jesus. Sometimes, surprisingly, even when they have money. Uh, It's not a one-off. Turn back one page. If you've got your Bible to chapter 18, and what will you find in chapter 18? A rich young ruler coming to Jesus, expressing that he's got something in his life missing. You know, Jesus, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life, he says, right? And Jesus is like, man, you know the commandments. And what's he say? And this is, this is Matthew's version of it. Matthew 19, verse 20, the young man said to him, all these I've kept, right? I've kept all those commandments. What do I still lack? He knows something's missing underneath. You see, underneath all that success, all the success he's experienced, he's still an insecure guy, and he knows it. And when Jesus shows up in people's lives, some people are brave enough to admit that their current way of life is not good enough. This man walked away, the rich young ruler walked away for the wrong reasons, right? Jesus says, sell everything you've got, give it to the poor, right? Come with me. And he just walks away sad. So he walks away for the wrong reasons, but he showed up for the right ones. He knew, he knew he lacked something. The point here at the beginning of our story is that Jesus has come to save the prodigals of the world, but the prodigals at some point have to admit they're unhappy before they come home. You understand that? Zacchaeus climbs a tree even though he's incredibly rich and he's risking getting crude jokes, made fun of. People probably would have thrown urine on him and he risks it because underneath he's like, my life is miserable. Some of you have had plenty, some of you have plenty of wonderful things going on in your life. You don't need to feel bad about that. Some of you, things are going well. You're in a great school. You you got a great job. You got great friends. You, You have a great marriage. You have great family. Your kids are beautiful. I mean, they're, when they're on Instagram, everybody's just, oh. <laughs> right? And the truth of it is, if you're honest, you don't, you don't want to say anything about your discontent because you don't want to be dramatic. And, and, and you don't want to look like a constant grumbler. You don't want to look or, or sound like you lack gratitude. But you know underneath that these things, these things that are going so well for you, the GPA, the school, all the, the you know, great degrees on your wall, the great bank account that just keeps getting up there. And some of you are like, I don't have any of that. Well, this point's not for you. They're for the people that, have, that are doing quite well. But underneath, you just know. And you don't want to talk about it. 
Because it just takes courage to open up and explore in prayer. And I would say even with a friend, you know, like a trusted friend. Like, I, can we just, I know that this stuff's going well, but man, there's something I lack. And I don't know if I put my finger on it yet, but something is tugging at me, like something lacks. I would just say that there's always an invitation there. Like, there's always an invitation. And that's the step you need to take, is to just process it in prayer, open yourself up to God, open yourself up to a trusted friend about what that lack feels like. Name it. You know, I'm angry. I'm sad. I'm whatever, fill in the blank. Verse five. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, that's the crowd, there was a big crowd forming, they grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. So right there, that little chunk of scripture, notice something. This is really, this is so super genius of Luke. He gives us a little triangle of relationships that works like a little metaphor uh, for spiritual renewal and transformation. Um, you've got Jesus showing loving interest in someone that everybody has said is, everybody's given up on him. So you've got Jesus showing interest in someone. You've got Zacchaeus receiving the interest with joy, and you've got the crowd grumbling about it. That little triangle tells you a whole lot about what life is like in following Jesus. Who is the crowd more angry with? I both, I'd say, I don't know, you know. What does it matter? Crowds are fickle. Have you noticed that? Crowds are rarely happy and crowds rarely, if ever, I would say, almost never, maybe never, see the bottom of a situation the way Jesus does. Crowds can't believe Jesus is spending the evening with a rich crook. And Zacchaeus is rightfully understood and seen as someone who has cheated. He has cheated. He admits it. And this is, again, a pattern about crowds and people. The crowds, did you notice? The crowds were grumbling about the blind beggar too. When he cries out, have mercy on me, son of David, it was the guys, the disciples, I think, leading the crowd, leading the group, leading the charge. They're like, no, 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 step back. He's too important for you. Crowds were, were grumbling at the blind beggar. If you turn back a little further than that, Crowds are grumbling at parents because they're bringing infants to Jesus, and Jesus rebukes them. Let the children come to me. It's all right there. Just read two chapters, 18 and 19. You'll see it happening over and over and over again. Crowds are like, no, no, no. They, they, they constantly find someone to dismiss. Kids, beggars, and rich people. Who does the crowd like? No one. No one. Eventually, the crowds won't like Jesus. Here's the principle I'm making. Um, if God is working and tugging on you, and he is, if he's working and tugging on you, 
then you're embarking on some kind of a change. Like, you just are. You're going through some kind of a transition and a transformation. You're on the brink of some kind of renewal in your life. At some point in that journey, you'll likely have some kind of crowd that you need to ignore. And I don't know who that crowd is for you. And that takes courage. So, for instance, um, change throws some people off. You know what I mean? Like, if you've ever experienced that, if you live long enough, you have probably experienced it. They just, most crowds, whether it's a crowd of three or a crowd of 30 or whatever it is, they lack the imagination in seeing what could happen in this person's life as they change. Because people, they don't want to do the work of actually dealing with the complexity of you. So they categorize you. And it's, it's far simpler to see you as your past or one mistake or whatever it is or one place that you live or the, you know, with the car that you drive. I mean, I don't know. All the ways in which we categorize people. And we all do it. I mean, I mean you know what I mean? This is us. We're a part of it, myself included. We use these quick categories for people. Um, and so it's tough for us when we're in the midst of change because people, the way they speak to us or the way they approach us or the way they talk about us to other people, it lacks that imagination. And sooner or later, you catch wind of it and you hear about it and it, it's disturbing to you. Why can't they let me just change? Why can't they just let me be different than the guy I was when I was 16? Why can't they just let me be different than the guy I was when I was 30? the woman that I was when I was 25. Am I not allowed to be different? I mean, you know, it's hard for people. It's hard for crowds. And maybe it's not, that's not the situation for you. Like some of you are, are, are uh, there's a different kind of crowd you have to ignore. Some of you are getting deeply interested in Jesus for the first time, like for the first time in your life. Or, or, or you're, you're getting interested in Jesus in a new and fresh way, even though you've been around Jesus for years. Uh, but you've got a particular crowd in your head. So for, for you, it's like, for some of you, it's the crowd of the church. It's the church. It's like you want Jesus, but you've got this crowd in the church that you just can't stand, right? Because they're hypocrites, uh, they lack genuine, like their life doesn't reflect what they talk about. And you don't like them very much because they make tons of mistakes. And you look at the church and you've got most of them categorized. They're self-righteous people. Their actions don't line up and you've got baggage with these people because the church has done things to you or said things that you don't like. And because of them, you're keeping your distance from actual transformation because of particular crowds that exist in the church. You're doing the same thing. You're lumping a whole group together. You're not willing to actually recognize that, oh, yes, in some ways, yes, the church is full of self-righteous hypocrites, believe me. And there are people inside of it that are not like that at all. And so there's a crowd there that you have to ignore. I mean, what this practice is, is for any of us and wherever we're at in our lives and what we kind of crowd we've got to deal with, it's like refusing to come to dinner because there are people at the table that you don't like, so you'd rather starve to death. The call for each of us is to notice. Notice the crowd that's bothering you 
right now, you know, and to fight against it. And I don't mean <laughs> fight against, don't fight them, you know. I would say, if anything, get humble, recognize in a more humble way how to be empathetic towards them. Yes, I sometimes lack imagination too. I've been in that same place where I'm overly simplistically you know, qualifying someone. So be empathetic towards them, but ignore some of the things that they're doing or saying or not recognizing in you. Push through that. Um, there's some crowd that you need to, to fight against. And um, if you don't, you're falling victim to the same kind of pride that you just hate in other people. Verse 8, And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. What happened in this home? What, what, did, what did Jesus, what do you think Jesus was saying to Zacchaeus, man, I wish I was there for that conversation. We don't even know how long he stayed. You get the sense like maybe he popped in for a drink or dinner and then left. For all we know, he might have stayed for days. It's fascinating to think about because I don't think Luke is trying to tell you everything. I think Luke is getting right to the point. He's got a lot he wants to do in this story of Jesus. What happened? I don't know. Luke leaves us in mystery. He just gets right after it. Whatever was said, it cut right to the heart of Zacchaeus, and he responds in a core area that has shaped most of his life. Think about it this way. Zacchaeus has spent his entire life, this is a bit of conjecture, but he has spent almost his entire life building a little empire of wealth. And he's hated, yes, but he had power and influence. And he doesn't, to be clear, he doesn't decimate his banking account, but half of his wealth and, and a willingness to give fourfold for whoever he defrauded, which was probably a lot of people, to the, you know, give it to those that he cheated, would have dramatically reshaped his life and then therefore reshaped his identity. He's now not the richest guy in Jericho. That's a radical shift for him. The point here that I'm making is this. It's not that Zacchaeus earned his salvation. I want to make sure I get that out, out front. It's that he's responding to grace. And the response is courageous, not necessarily because of the amount, although it is extravagant. It's far and above what he needed to do. It's courageous because it's a response in the exact area where Zacchaeus has previously derived his identity and his value. And that's really important. You see, not everyone who experiences renewal and transformation has the exact same kind of battle and journey. It's not the same. And you'll see that when you read the Gospels very closely and you make sure you pair up stories and go, hmm, what's going on here? Why are, what's the message that Luke is getting across or Matthew's getting across or Mark's getting across? With Zacchaeus, half of his wealth was celebrated by Jesus. Did you see that? Half of his wealth. And Jesus is like, salvation, wonderful, awesome, for the rich young ruler, Jesus said, sell everything. Well, which is it, Jesus? Is it everything or is it half? You're missing the point. It depends. Depends on who you are, where you're at. Jesus sees right to the bottom of you. He knows what's going on. 
For the blind beggar, Jesus just simply asked him this, what do you want me to do for you? Now, there's a lot in that question. You read that question and you're like, he wants sight. But Jesus knows something else is going on. Are you willing to stop being a beggar? Are you willing to not be the victim forever? Are you willing to take up a whole new life? If you, start, if you, if you can see actually now, it's like, do you know what it's going to be like to go get a job? I mean, there's a whole radical shift that that man's going to have to go through. I don't know what at all is involved in it, but it's a shift. And is he prepared to do it? So I think Jesus is asking far more there. See, I love this. In the rich young ruler story, the young guy comes to Jesus. What do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And we only find this in Mark's version of that story because all of the gospel writers talk about it. But I love in that story where the young rich guy comes to Jesus asking, you know, I lack something, but I want eternal life. What do I need to do? And Jesus is, you know, says, you know, go follow, you know, do all the commandments. He says, I've done that. But, you know, and he says, go sell everything and give it to the poor, right? But in Mark 10, verse 21, it says this, and Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Loved him. Like he sees right through him to the bottom. And he knows where he's stuck. That's why the callings and the, the, the invitations are different for the different people. Because they're stuck in different ways. Jesus saw this man all the way through. He saw all of them all the way through. Just like he sees you all the way through. Right to the bottom. He knew exactly where he needed challenged. He knew exactly the thing that he was gaining his sense of identity from. And like a skilled surgeon, he cuts right to the core issue. The takeaway here is this. If you're seriously open to transformation, if you are actually seriously open to transformation and change in your life, do not be surprised if you start feeling tugged or bothered in an area that, you, that makes you feel very vulnerable. Because you're going to think and you're going to hope on some level, maybe on an unconscious level, that you're saying, I'm open to transformation, and he's just going to grab me or tug at me and push or invite me in these little areas that I can be like, yes, I can give that up. But there's one area in which you're guarded, and you know it. And the way you know it is if somebody starts talking to you about it, your heart rate goes up a little bit, and you get defensive. There's always an area in which you're guarded a little bit. You're a little closed off when that topic comes up. So you'd rather keep talking about this area because this area is something that I can deal with a little bit more easily. Imagine yourself going to Jesus and he looks at you and he asks, what do you want me to do for you? And before you answer, think about this. Why would Jesus need to ask such a question if he already knows you? Because he wants you to actually process. What if he's asking this because he wants you to stop and ask yourself a deeper question? Like, am I looking just for some minor tweaks in my life? Or am I actually wanting to deal with my core issues? Am I actually open to living a new kind of life? And if so, if that's what you're open to, then everything has to be on the table. So for some of you, not all, because you're not all the same. For some of you, that means issues around money. Like, you're cool talking about anything. Like, we can talk about pornography. Like, we can talk about politics. 
We can talk about coming to church. We can talk about cussing. I don't know what your things are. You're just like, I'll talk about that all day. But if we start talking about how you structure your finances and what you give away, you get guarded and defensive and you want to leave the conversation. Some of you, that's not your thing at all. Some of you, it's the, you know, the school you've gotten into or the path that you're on in your career. You know, There's an area there for you. Some of you, it's your looks. You know, I'm way past that. It's just not my area anymore. But I got my areas. You know, but for some of you, it's a romantic relationship that you're in and the prospect or the, or the prospect of one of a relationship, a romantic relationship, and how it's, you know, that whole thing is shaping your whole sense of value. You're, getting, you're driving all of your value from that. And, and Jesus is just inviting you. I need you to dump this guy. I need you to dump this girl. I'm not talking about marriage. I'm talking about dating. For some of you, it's family or parenting or grandparenting. You're deriving all of your identity and your worth in that area. And you're, you need to be challenged in it. And you know it. For some of you, it's your knowledge and your accomplishments. It's like you just need to start to experience a season where no one cares about what you've done. Uh, some of you, it's the exact opposite. I see this all the time. I see this all the time. Uh, some of you, it's you need to get past the whole identity of I'm not academic enough, I can't read my Bible. I'm not one of the smart people. And you just need to be challenged. Why, what, who has been telling you that your whole life? Uh, for some of you, it's issues around forgiveness. You know, you're cool with everything, but there's just like three people that you won't forgive. Or one person. You're open to change anywhere but that area, that core area. I, of course, don't know which one it is for you and where you're at. I know we all have areas that we still extract too much identity from, you know? These are hard-fought wars that we all have. And, but if we're willing to challenge ourselves in them by the Spirit of God, you know, real renewal is on the other side of that. I mean, it's scary, you know what I mean? It's painful. Like, I, I, I think that that's like, as it, awful and chaotic as the last two years have been, there's so much opportunity in it. Because the truth of it is, friends, like we, <laughs> we, we got decimated by nature. And we thought tech and advancement and knowledge had us safe. And now there's economic instability, there's like climate instability, there's all sorts of it, you know, there's racial instability. Like we're having to face all these things and it's like, oh my gosh, we did not have things figured out. We were not nearly as insulated as we thought we were. And there's an opportunity for us to own up to these things and wrestle, say, what does this mean about me? Where have I been? Renewal is on the other side of that, and it's really uncomfortable. But to become really dependent on God and go, I don't know actually who I am anymore, is a scary place, but man, an amazing place. Because change is there, real change is there. Quite frankly, previously two years ago, before all of this madness took off, you know, for me, what I recognize in hindsight is I'm like, you know what, we were, it was comfortable and easy in some ways, I'll admit, I would love to go back to that, but there were a whole lot of sleepy Christians. There were a whole lot of Christians in the church that probably should have been gone a long time ago. 
They were, wasting, they were wasting everyone's time, including themselves. And I know that that sounds mean and harsh, but like, what are we doing here? What are we doing? I mean, I think the way we identify these areas is to simply notice where you feel guarded. Where do you feel guarded? Where do you notice you're resistant or, 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 you, know, or you get defensive when it's talked about in you? I mean, the, the, those areas will communicate a whole lot about where your heart is. And so as we, as we come to the table this morning in communion, I just want to add a careful nuance here, a really careful, important one. Zacchaeus is not the hero of the story. That is not the point I was trying to make. He's the rescued. He's the saved. He's, he's not the savior. He's the prodigal, as it were. Jesus is the one who's doing far more of the pursuing than Zacchaeus is. It's Jesus that picks him out of the crowd. It's Jesus that somehow, and, and we don't know how, knows Zacchaeus' name. Have we ever thought about that? How in the world does he know his name? There was no introduction. You get the sense that Jesus has planned the encounter the whole time. And it's Jesus who shows immense bravery by befriending the guy that everyone in town hated and gave up on. And it's Jesus who knows he's heading to Jerusalem. Bear in mind the whole arc of the story. It's Jesus that knows he's heading to Jerusalem to be accused, to be mocked, to be sentenced and murdered for crimes he didn't commit so that he can redeem the lost. And, he, and yet, the, t- the clock is ticking in this scene. And there is no escape clause. And yet Jesus decides it's worthwhile to take the time to spend the evening with a rich crook. It's not how I would spend my time, but it's how Jesus decided to spend his. Jesus somehow thinks it's worthwhile to hang out with a crude businessman who can actually experience new life. And I think as we come to the table this morning in communion to celebrate Jesus's life in our place, I think it's worth thinking about. It's also worth reflecting on the fact that his courage beckons our courage. And that's all I'm trying to highlight today. It's the the courage of Jesus that beckons us to courage. He loves us to the bottom. He's willing to move heaven and earth for you. But he is calling you out in a particular environment. And we all have our areas. And so this bread that we have up here represents Christ's body broken for you. And this cup of wine represents Christ's blood. It's the new covenant in his blood. So as we come this morning, we're proclaiming the Lord's death. We're proclaiming Jesus' life in our place. It's what Jesus did at moments, you know, before he was taken and crucified. And we celebrate that and we remember that weekly. If you're a Christian this morning, you're invited to this station or to this station. You don't need to be a member of this church. If you've got a genuine confession of Jesus as Lord in your life, take a piece of the bread, dip it in the wine or the juice, whichever your conscience permits. You're invited to come forward. Take the time that you need in prayer. And I hope and I pray that the Spirit leads you in the area that in which you just need to be experienced transformation, and myself included. Let us pray. Father, we love you and we thank you.